Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 5. As we're coming to the end of the book of 1 John, it's been a great trip through this book. John kind of focuses in on a few truths that he stresses from different angles and in different ways. As he, he talks about um, the fact that we can know God. He talks about God's grace and his love. Talks about our relationship to sin and receiving forgiveness. And, and the safety and assurance of knowing where we stand with God. And so he's been going through all these various themes. And now as we come to the last four verses of the book, he reiterates all of these themes. But he chooses to do it in a way in which he reminds us of what we know. Um, it's important for us to pay attention to and remember what we know. Because in life, there's so much that we don't know. I look back at my past, and there's so many things that I can't make sense of. I look at the present, I look at the future, and I go, wow, I have way more questions than answers. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. As a result, my present is kind of up in the air because I still haven't figured out my past. My future is uncertain. It makes my present rather insecure. And if I focus my attention on what I don't know, I will be absolutely overwhelmed because the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know. When I was younger, I thought I was much smarter and I thought I knew most, but as we get older, not only does our mind deteriorate and we don't remember all those things we used to know, but at the same time, we realize that there's so much more left to be known. Um, people often, when I answer Bible questions, people just go, wow, that's amazing how much you know. And I think to myself, every time I ever answer Bible questions, whether at a retreat or on the radio or whatever, all my mind can think of is, <clears throat> right now I could come up with a hundred questions I can't answer. I have no idea. And life is that way. So much mystery. But... Pastor Chuck used to always say, when you come across things that you don't understand, hang on to what you do understand. And I think it's so true when it comes to life. If there are a bunch of things I don't know, I certainly need to focus my attention on what I do know. What I do know is much less than what I don't know, but what I do know is critical to giving me a perspective on that which I don't know. And so here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18, 19, and 20 all start with, we know, in verse 18. We know in verse 19. And we know in verse 20. And so John is summarizing for us our very foundation. Here's what we know. Here's what we can bank on. Here's what we can count on and depend on to give us a perspective to deal with all of those things in life that don't make so much sense to us. And so let's just go ahead and look through this passage. Now the word know that's used here is the Greek word gnosko, and, and it refers not just to having a, a mental awareness of something, but it's a knowledge that's based on experience. It's, it's knowing something that has been tested and lived and is something that because of your experience in the past, it's something that you can hang on to and, and count on for the future. And so he says in verse 18, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. 
But he who has been born of God guards himself, keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, um, this is a great encouragement to know that, boy, uh, you know, if you're born of God, you don't sin and Satan can't touch you. But that presents a bit of a difficulty for us because John has already made the point in this book and in the, the key verse to the book, 1 John 1, 9, uh, he talks about what to do when we sin. And in that first chapter, he says, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. You're fooling yourself. You're calling God a liar. So when he says whoever is born of God does not sin, if that meant that by being a child of God, by being a Christian, that you'll never sin, it would contradict everything that he's saying. But throughout the book, what he's been talking about is the relationship of having a relationship with God and how that affects the influence of sin in our lives. And you cannot be born of God and just continue going the way you used to go. He interrupts that pattern that we were living, and if we are truly born of him, he makes a difference in our lives. Last week, we were talking a bit about sin and what it, and what it means to sin. And sin isn't just violating arbitrary rules that God sets up. We were created with a perfect plan, a destiny that God has for us. What in, in the Greeks... They, the Greeks would use the word meros, which was a word that meant to get your peace, to fulfill your place, to, to fill the gap that's designed there for you to fill. And, and it, to sin is the word for that uh, prefixed with the, with the word a, which means not. And anytime we sin, it's violating the plan that God has for our life, violating living up to what the best version of us can possibly be. As someone who wrote to me this last week, I can't remember if it was on my blog or, or an email, but they said, the way you describe sin, I like that. He said, it's derailed destiny. And I said, ooh, I like that. That's a good description of it. You have this destiny, and the things that you do knock you off track from getting where it is that you're going. Well, when you're a child of God, when he's your father, he will work in your life and it will not go on just the way it did before. There is a distinct difference. And, and when you understand what it is to be his child and when you've really responded to his grace, you see things change in your life. You don't just continue doing everything that you did before. You don't become perfect either. But now you have someone who has paid for your sin, who wants to walk through it with you, who went ahead of you and, and already took care of it. And so there's a security. And really, a lot of what these verses are saying is you're safe. Just like earlier in the chapter when he said, I wrote these things so that you'd know that you have eternal life. He wants to assure us that we're taken care of, that that God loves us, that he is protecting us. And a part of that has to have to do with sin. If you say you're a child of God, and yet you are continuing to destroy yourself, you are continuing to sin in those same ways that you always have, 
there's a reason to question whether or not you really were born again. Because if you understand what it is to have a relationship with God, it will make a difference in your life. He will make a difference in your life. You won't be perfect, but things will change. And so he's saying, if he is our father, if we've really been born of him, we're going to see a difference in how we live out that which he created us to be. And he'll go more into that later. But notice it says, he who has been born of God keeps himself or guards himself, and the wicked one doesn't touch him. I like the idea of God protecting me, and I'm thankful that he does. And there's no doubt about it, like any good father, our heavenly father protects us in amazing ways. But it's, it's interesting to me, and perhaps even more profound, that he says, because he's our father and he's dealing with the sin in our lives, we are able to protect or guard ourselves. And that is actually a higher value by far than for someone to protect you is for someone to give tools to someone whereby they are able to protect themselves. They are able to take precautions themselves, deal with sin in their lives with his strength and with his help, but by our volition. And until we decide that we want to protect ourselves, then our growth becomes stunted. Now, when you have a baby, it's, that baby needs your complete protection. It needs you to do everything for them. And rightfully so, you, you don't just stick the baby in the drawer and go out to dinner because baby's unable to protect themselves. But there are some people who never get the fact that you are not to protect your kids in every situation all the time. And when people don't understand that raising children is all about protecting them, but moving more and more into giving them the capacity to protect themselves and to make decisions for themselves, if we don't ever figure that out, what you have are you know, pathetic adults who, 30, 40 years old, they're still absolutely dependent on their parents because parents never actually gave them the tools to go out and take care of themselves. And to me, what we would refer to as an overprotective parent um, that's, that's a misnomer. Because if you are overprotective, you're underprotective because you're not protecting your children the way you are supposed to. All you have to do is think about what our Heavenly Father does for us. We're born of God. And when you're a new Christian, it's amazing how much He protects us sometimes. Does things in our lives that, that will isolate us from people who could do us harm. He he makes everything exciting and new and so many great things happen. But very quickly, God says, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to live by faith. And so I have to give you freedom to even reject me if that's what you choose to do. And he lovingly pushes us out of the nest and he's right there to catch us if we fall. But he wants us to get to the point where we aren't so dependent on him that we aren't able to think for ourselves because he wants to, to work in us and to mature us. And to me, some of the most destructive parenting I've ever seen is in people who have such a heart to protect their children that they're scared to death to let them live and make choices and think for themselves. And so what happens generally is as long as 
they have a financial dependence on you, you bribe them to make them do what you want them to do, and they can't wait to get out of your house so they can end up doing everything the opposite of what you've tried to brainwash them to do. Believe me, your kids are going to rebel sometimes. Much safer for them to rebel in your house than to just wait until they go to college and then they do whatever they want to do and they've never had the opportunity to learn how to fend for themselves or protect themselves. And so we never want to act like protection means I protect you because God doesn't do that. What we see here is actually God respects us too much to take away our will. God respects us enough that he understands that what he is to do is to protect us by empowering us to protect ourselves. And so he says, hey, you, because God is your dad, he has taught you how to guard yourself. And he has taught you how to deal with sin in your life. And so it's really, it becomes kind of scary if we just, you know, many of us would just like to roll up in a cocoon and have God do everything for us and just hold our breath for the rapture. But in reality, it's a much higher respect and blessing, the fact that God says, I'm your dad. And as he says, you're born of me, and we're working on your sin together. But listen, you need to learn to protect yourself. You need to be to guard yourself. And as you do that, the wicked one doesn't touch him. Now that word touch there, that's probably an unfortunate um, choice of, of translation words because the word there doesn't mean touch, just like, and we can look at it and act like, oh, Satan can't do anything against us. He can't even touch us. But the word there, actually what it means is attach yourself to. It's the same word that's used over in John chapter 20 when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was there in the garden of Gethsemane and Mary came across him. She thought he was a gardener and then he said to her, Mary. And there was something about the tone of his voice or the way he said it that caused her to instantly go, oh, it's Jesus. And she came and she threw her arms around him and just locked him in a death grip. You know, had like a choke on him. And, and Jesus said, in the King James it says, Mary, don't touch me. But he, he wasn't saying, don't touch me. He was saying, don't fasten yourself onto me. Don't lock me into your grip. Relax. It's going to be okay. I'm all right. You're all right. And so it, it's the same kind of word. Now, clearly, there are people who believe that people who are ch children of God, Christians, can be demonized or demon-possessed, where a demon fastens himself to you and is dominating you and speaking through you and all that kind of stuff. That's ridiculous. There are so many scriptures that would contradict that, and this is certainly one of the, one of the greatest. And you remember in the previous chapter where he said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so the Bible certainly wouldn't, wouldn't teach that kind of thing. However, it certainly does teach that Satan can annoy you and lie to you and confront you. But his point here in this verse is, look, you can win this. You can do this. You can overcome the evil one. You are able to deal with your sin in an honest way and, 
and confess it and receive forgiveness for it, because you are his child, he lets you have the privilege of coming to him and choosing to have a better life than what you used to have and, and protecting yourself in this way. And so he goes, look, here's one thing that you can know. If you've been born of God, you can know that. He already told us that earlier in the chapter. But you can also know that you don't have to worry about what the devil's going to do against you because you have the one who not only has protected you, but you have the one who protected you by helping you how to know, to pro- know how to protect yourself. And so he sends you out, and yeah, you'll be attacked, but you can win this. And so if today you're feeling like, I don't know if I can make it, I'm not sure if I can win this. I don't know if the sin that's in my life is so bad that I don't think I can have victory over it. John would say, no, you know this because you're his child and he has given you the ability. You have the choice, but he's given you the tools to guard yourself and Satan cannot attach himself to you. The spirit of God is within you and you are designed to have victory over sin, not to just become victims of sin. But this is a process that God does in our lives. And a part of this is looking at the pile of sin that is me and realizing that he isn't pointing his finger at me and blasting me for sin. He is coming alongside me and saying, I paid for it. Come on, let's dig through this mess and let's get your life together. You can do this, he is saying. And so John says, you can know that. Whatever else you don't know, you can certainly know that. And then in verse 19, the second we know, he says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that we are of God, that we are from him, that we are in an orientation toward him. Now back in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And so here, we know that we are of God. And he already described, the easiest way to know that you're of God is do you care about people? Now if you believe in Jesus, but you don't care about people, John would say, I don't know, man, you're on your own on that one. Because if you don't care about people, i got to really wonder whether or not you are really of God. But when you see yourself growing in care that you have for others, then it's, it's conclusive evidence that you are of God. But he contrasts that with, as he says there, the world, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one lies literally of the wicked one. That word there for lies is, is a word that means to lie down and go to sleep. So what he's explaining here is you have to understand the world is asleep. The world has been lulled into a stupor whereby most people in this world don't even understand what's going on in the world or in their own lives or what God is doing, but he says, You're not like that. You're of God. Now, it tells you a couple things. You will be a minority. 
most of the input that you get will not be true, as he's going to go on and state in the next verse. But he says, you can know this. You are of God. And part of that is knowing that most people aren't. hate to say it that way, but that's something that you better understand. If we don't understand that, we will be constantly disillusioned. We will be constantly depressed when we think we start to get somewhere and everybody thinks we're nuts. But according to him, they're not nuts. It's just everyone's asleep. Almost everyone out there has just dozed off. And, and Satan has played his lullaby for them and rocked them into a stupor. And that's why when you look around you, this world looks like an old Twilight Zone episode because it's like, wait a minute. I mean, I, I start to think I see the truth and then everyone tells me that's crazy and so maybe I ought to just give up. Maybe I ought to just go to sleep. This is, this is what's the matter in this world is that people haven't been awakened to the possibility of a relationship with God. And so we need to understand this. We need to know this. We are of God. The love that we have in our hearts for others absolutely proves that we are of God. So you can know that even though most people don't love you and most people don't seem to be concerned about the things that you're concerned about. And so don't expect the world to get you. Don't expect the world to make sense. The best sense that anyone without Jesus can ever make is to point out how ugly the world is and how hopeless it is. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as an old jaded man who had who kind of ruined his own life just seeking pleasure and things like that. And, and as he was older, he was looking at the world under the sun. And he was saying, this world is pointless, meaningless, depressing in some ways, I wish I wasn't born. Now, that's a beautiful expression of the reality of what life is apart from God. Um, almost every great artwork that's out there, whether it's written, whether it is a song that was, that was composed, whether it is a painting that was created, whatever artistic expressions that the world comes up with, most of it is is accurate and good based on how well it reflects the world of sleeping people who have bought into the lies of the enemy. And so, and so often when I hear a song and I think, why does that connect with me so well? Then I realize it's describing the way my life was without Jesus Christ. And when I, when I see a beautiful painting so often, it's not because, wow, it creates the world the way I want it to be, but most of the most powerful artwork has a dark side to it that allows you to go, I think this is describing a world without God. And the reason why that becomes profound in an artistic sense is that because people are sleeping, they don't even realize what's happening to them. But when they begin to be honest, and the key is always about honesty, as we'll see in the next verse, when they finally start to admit reality what they see is kind of ugly, but they're getting somewhere. And I thank God when, when someone in this world stops 
faking it and stops pretending a little bit and says, wow, I just realized how pointless life is. I realized this despair, the, the philosophical position of existentialism, which is one that you know, became really famous with Jean-Paul Sartre and people like that in the 60s, uh, Kurt Vonnegut and other writers who would, you know, who would expound on this kind of a thing. It was called the philosophy of despair because it's looking at things the way they are and going, this, this is bad, this is terrible, this is absurd, there's no logic, there's no truth. Contrary to someone who knows the truth, People in the world, the best they can do apart from Jesus is to look and go, there's something desperately wrong here and I can't make sense out of it. And so I appreciate every artistic expression that reflects that because that's the first step to having your life turned around, to recognize that I've been faking it, but this isn't really working for me. Sadly, there are a whole lot of Christians who live a life of deception as well, pretending like Things are working, but in reality, not doing that, as we'll see in the next verse, that's precisely what's wrong with our world. But he says here in verse 20 again, we know that, or in verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So even though he can't latch on to us, the world out there is dominated by him. Consequently, most of what we hear is going to be a lie. And so if you take a vote on what you're going to believe, you're going to vote wrong every time. But now he goes a step further in verse 20, and he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, as opposed to the one who is false, the father of lies. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Boy, there's a bunch in that verse. But he says, we know that the Son of God has come, so we know that the gospel is true. We know that he has given us an understanding. The word there for understanding is dianoia. Anoia means mind, and dia means all the way through. That's why the word diameter means the measure of going all the way through something. Now, what he's saying is God has actually given us the ability to tunnel through all the garbage and get a perspective. And that's what the gospel does. It's, it's finding the good news of Jesus. It's discovering that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that which is messing us up can be dealt with by him. And he wants to deal with it with us. He paid for that to happen. And the whole thing is about knowing him. But knowing him means understanding there are a bunch of lies and there is one truth. And, and his working in our mind gives our mind the ability to understand that he is the truth. Jesus didn't come and say, I came to tell you all truth. Because there's a bunch of things he didn't tell us. So much more that I, you know, we'll spend all of eternity probably picking his brain. But what Jesus said was, I am the truth. You just need to know me. And whoever comes to me will have the truth because I am the truth. And here he is saying that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Over in John chapter 17 in Jesus' 
high priestly prayer. As he was praying to the Father, John 17 and verse 3, he says to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's real. He's true. And coming into a relationship with him is really what the whole book of 1 John was about. John started it out by saying, hey, I touched Jesus. I lived with him, even though he's been from the beginning. But he said, I touched him, my hands handled the word of life, but I'm telling you that you can have fellowship with us just like we have with him. You can draw close to him and you can know him. And when you know him, you will know the one who is true, the one who is real. Again, this is, you know, notice in verse 20, he says that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, who is the true God. All of this is pointing out that there's a bunch of faults. There's one true. Radical thing to suggest that everyone else is wrong and only he is right. But isn't that the way life always is anyway? I mean, if you, if you poll everyone, do they ever come up with the right answer? Of course not. Maybe buried in there somewhere. But in general, the majority is almost always wrong. But he's saying, so, so the whole world is under the influence of a liar. But if you know him, you know what matters most. Because he's real. He's true. And if you draw into a relationship with him, you draw close to him, you understand that he saves you for free. That he just wants to put his grace on you. He's not trying to twist your arm and make you do something. If he wanted to make you good, he could do that. He could force that. But he wants you to learn to make those choices whereby you draw closer to God and understand his grace. And your understanding of his grace has a transforming effect in your life. That's what he's trying to do. Now, this is something that we know, but do we live it? And that becomes a different problem completely. Because as much as the whole world is buried in lies, unfortunately, a whole lot of people who are children of God, who have accepted him and know all about him, still feel like they can't be themselves. They still feel like they have to pretend. Now, what kind of a message do we as the church have to people who are in the world when their problem is they're living a lie and then we as Christians live a lie also. And it was John's heart to go, no, do you understand this? The gospel is if you will just be honest, you will be forgiven. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is. Confess, admit it, he'll forgive it. So what God is calling us to do is to be as real as he is, to be honest about where we are. Now, again, some of the most beautiful art expresses that tendency that people have to be phony. And every once in a while, somebody who's sleeping in the influence of the enemy begins to wake up, and they squint their eyes as some light shines in, and they go, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. And, and that's what the philosophy, modern philosophy really does. There was a song years ago, a beautiful song by Jackson Brown that expressed this so powerfully. The song was called The Pretender. He's describing a guy who realizes, you know what, I'm just, I don't think life is ever going to be what I want it to be. 
And so I'm just going to fake it like everyone else. I'm just going to curl up and go to sleep myself. And in the song, he says, I'm going to rent myself a house in the shade of the freeway. I'm going to pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day. And when the evening rolls around, I'll go home and lay my body down. And when the morning light comes streaming in, I'll get up and do it again. And then in the chorus, he says, I'm going to be a happy idiot and struggle for the legal tender where the ads take aim and lay their claim to the heart and the soul of the spender and believe in whatever may lie in things that money can buy. Though true love once could have been a contender, are you there? Say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender. Say a prayer for the pretender. Are you there for the pretender? That's the fake world in which we live. And it's profound insight to at least acknowledge that, to at least admit my life is a lie. Now, bring that to us. We are children of the living God, the true God. Jesus Christ, as John says here, he is the true God. He is eternal life. Again, this verse is one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ. Grammatically, it clearly is referring to Jesus Christ and calling him the true God. John Stott said, this is the most profound verse on the deity of Christ. And that's why in the early church during the Arian controversy, this was a key verse that they always brought up because it states clearly who he is and that he is true and that anything other than him is fake. And so that's the message that we have to offer to a world. But the only way we can offer it is if we are true like he is. If we realize I can stop hiding, it's so tragic when people who know about God, people who teach about God, never get to the point where they can ever look themselves in the mirror or they feel like you know, they can take their mask off. Our masks are cracking and falling away from us. People look at us and they can tell if we're honest or not. They can tell if we're faking it or if it's real what God's doing in our lives. And a part of that is just admitting our failure. Stop trying to hide and cover for that which we can't do. And finally realizing Jesus died for us. He paid for all of our sins. He wants, he accepts us with our sin, loves us with them, wants to stand by our side and help us to work through all of that junk and get our lives to improve where sin isn't destroying us so much. And, and yet, for so many people, they feel like, I need to be a pretender. And so the whole world is looking to find out if there's anything that's really true. And, and the postmodern philosophy, which was kind of a, came from the early existential philosophies of the 50s and 60s, the postmodern philosophy comes to the conclusion there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as anything that's real. We are all asleep. We are all deluded. But what John is saying, we aren't. I'm certain of this. I know this. I am confident of this, that if I am honest, Jesus is there. That if I will be open with who I am, he will be there to forgive us. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And the worst thing ever for a Christian to be accused of is to be phony. And people can see it when we're phony. They know that we're faking it a lot of times. But what they're looking for every time they start to wake up is, I wonder if there's anything out there that's real. And that's up to us. 
to just be real. And it's the safest risk for us to take because he already says, I don't care what failure you have, if you own it, I forgive it. If you admit it, it's gone. We'll work on it together. But John is just going, come on. You have a guarantee that should set you free to be truthful, to be real, to be honest. So what do we know? We know that being born of God means he's going to deal with our sin. We know that we are of God even though we're in a minority. And we know that the Son of God has given us the capacity to have a relationship with Him, a real, living relationship with Him. We can know Him when we believe His Word, when we believe His Gospel, and when we're just honest, we're just real. We provide that, and, and He's the true God and eternal life, and we can be true children of His as well. And then finally in verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves, guard yourselves from idols. Earlier he said you keep yourself from the influence of sin and the wicked one. And now he says idols are an enemy. Idols are simply anything that takes the place of God. People idolize all sorts of things. An idol or an icon is just something that represents something else. And ultimately what makes us phony is idolatry. It's looking to make something else do the job that God is supposed to do for us. And so, and I mean, our whole society is programming us this way. I mean, you turn on TV and they can, they can make anything look like it's what's missing from your life. You can, you can be driving a, a brand new Corvette and you turn on the TV, and they really look like, no, the real car you want is a minivan. And you're like, this is weird. But they're so good at building up idols that somebody can crave a minivan. And it's strange. I can never figure out why somebody has one kid, they think they need a minivan right away. Well, hey, it's programming. It's lies that fool you. And see, every product on TV is supposed to make you fulfilled. It's supposed to be worth living for. And none of it is. And so we clutter our lives and we, we buy things we can't afford and we continue to feel less than satisfied because of what we don't have. We can't appreciate and enjoy what we do have. And John's going, you need to protect yourself. You need to be aware that no matter who you are, that there are a whole bunch of fake gods out there and you have the ability to fall for it. You have the ability to sucker for it. I'm amazed at what they can make me want. I'm amazed at how easily I can think I really need that. You look at commercial and you see somebody on steroids really buffed and they have these ripped abs. What is fun about ripped abs, really? <laughs> I mean, you don't really walk around with your stomach showing all the time. And yet I, I look at that as I'm eating macaroni and cheese, and I'm just going, I'd love to have that belly. And I'm thinking, you know, the little pieces of macaroni lined up just right. And... But what is it that causes us to think, that's it, I want that? It's simply not letting the true God be everything that you need. 
and knowing that he will give you whatever you need. And whatever he leads you to do, you do that. Whenever you go against what his values are, you become self-defeating and you mess up your life and you hurt a whole lot more. And, and so John is just wrapping it up by saying, in a way, here's what I'm telling you guys, there's a real God and there's a bunch of fake gods. Do not follow the fake. Guard yourself from idolatry. Guard yourself from putting anything in the place of God. From expecting to get fulfillment from anyone or anything other than God. God wants to fill what's lacking in my life. And so often we think, boy, the people in my life are letting me down. They just aren't doing what they should be doing. And then we think, you know, and our government's letting us down. And my job is letting me down. And my health is letting me down. And we can line up areas whereby look at how much is missing in my life. If I had the perfect spouse, the perfect kids, the perfect friends, the perfect job, the perfect church, you know, then things would be good. But he goes, no, you know what? All those things are simply idols to you. Whatever is missing in your life, God wants to come in and fill the gap. Wouldn't you rather have him doing it? I don't freak out when it's like, oh, wow, I see a few empty chairs in church. Because you know who's sitting in those chairs? It's God. He fills them. He's here. And in every area of my life, I want to be of the mindset that goes, I just want him. That's all I want. Paul talked about this in Philippians 3 when he said, you know, I had it all but I flushed it all so that I could just know God, that I would just connect with him. And that's all that matters to me anymore. And that's the heart of John as well. Get to the point where nothing else can compete with God, where nothing else can, can in its absence, dictate what kind of a day we're having. Just to know him, to love him, to be honest with him and with others, that's kind of what John's trying to say. So, If you're here today, by the way, and you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, after the service, there'll be people up here who'd love to pray with you. They love you, and they'd love to spend time with you, praying for you for any need that you have in your lives. But especially if you're thinking, I'm, there's something so missing in my life, and maybe what it is is a relationship with God. And if that's you and you're ready to take a chance, you've already got jaded enough that you realize it didn't work for you, and you're sleeping beauty and you're waiting for your prince to come and kiss you and wake you up, he is waiting to come and kiss you and wake you up, to give you a fresh start in your life. And, and so I pray that today you'll do that. At the end of the service, just come on up and get prayer and get your life right with God. And for all the rest of us, let's just be real this week. You don't have a single reason to pretend anything. We know God. He's true. We don't have to play games anymore, the idolatrous games of pretending to be something that we aren't. And when people see that we're real, they'll begin to think, maybe this is real. Maybe this is possible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for reminding us of what we know when we become so overwhelmed by what we don't know. Help us to spend time meditating on these things that John says we know so that they become the pillars and the foundation of our life with you. So God, 
Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this book of 1 John that's so beautiful and so practical. Set us free from idols so that we can be ourselves in fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.